Faith matters. Assalamu alaikum. You are listening to The Voice of Islam, where we bring you Faith Matters, a program devoted to taking questions on a variety of contemporary and religious issues, where you, our listeners, set the agenda by the questions you ask. You can send in your questions at faithmatters at voiceofislam.co.uk. And if you have Sky Digital, this program is also available for viewing on Muslim Television Ahmadiyya, channel 787. Alternatively, you can open it up on YouTube. Go to YouTube, put in the words MTA Online 1, Faith Matters, the name of the program, and the question you're after. And if you don't find the answer right there, you know what to do. Email us on The Voice of Islam on Faith Matters at voiceofislam.co.uk. With that, it's my pleasure to welcome back to regular panelists and established scholars within the Amdiya Muslim community. Gentlemen, assalamu alaikum and welcome to Faith Matters. Of course, to my immediate right is Dr. Zayed Ahmed Khan Sahib, who is president of the Qazar Board, the Board of Jurisprudence here in the United Kingdom for the Amdiya Muslim community. Welcome, Dr. Sahib. And to his right, of course, is of Maulana Abdul Ghani Jahangir Khan Sahib, who is a senior missionary for the Amdiya Muslim community and also head of the Global French Desk. Gentlemen, assalamu alaikum and welcome to Faith Matters. We're <coughs> going to start with the first question, which comes from Rahana Majid. Assalamu alaikum and thank you, Rahana, for your question. Um, she's quoting a particular hadith of the Holy Prophet um, of Islam, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. But in essence, her question goes down to it's something I suppose we see quite regularly with this whole issue of people who serve in public life and the great intrusions um, at time we see into their private lives. And her question is that based on the hadith and the traditions of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, she's suggesting that it's her own interpretation and she wants light thrown on it. Is, is it relevant to actually look and be more intrusive into people's private lives to judge how they may be accountable publicly? Um, because ultimately, I suppose there's an argument also that those who serve in public life have to reflect those attributes that they often talk about and advocate as part of their own private lives. Dr. Saab, if I could start with you. It's something which, it's across the world. People often argue, well, that's a private matter and it should be left privately. Others will take the view that actually if you're a pub in public life, then your private life does matter. Absolutely, I mean, both parties have got a responsibility uh, on their own accounts. Uh, first and foremost for the public who actually uh, perhaps elect these people or appoint these people mm -hmm. that we are told in the Holy Quran mm -hmm. that you should give those trusts to those people who you feel are the best in that position to undertake that responsibility and once that person has been made responsible for a certain uh, office then it's their responsibility to discharge the obligations that have been mm -hmm. put, put, beyond, put before them so there is two angles to that but we know at the same time that uh, if there is something in the background of someone that perhaps did not come out in the uh, time before their appointment, and if it is there in the public view, then that is going to impact both on the public and on the office that they are holding. Are they, are they going to be able to discharge the responsibility for which they were appointed? However, that does not mean to say that, the, that we should delve into the lives and try to dig up any dirt and, and try to find faults in those people who have been made responsible for those offices. That is, that is not the case. 
Because often that could tantamount to spying on it, you. It certainly does. Slides, can't you, and yes. yes, but sometimes you see things do come, come out in the air that a certain person has a certain weakness, which is perhaps impacting on their responsibilities in that office. So what do we do in that respect? Then we can always have representation to the authorities that are out there who have uh, perhaps uh, a better position to be able to deal with that rather than take matters into our own hands. So that is the important thing. Islam does say that you should cover up the faults of your fellow beings. Humans are weak in nature. They are liable to make mistakes. There may be minor mistakes. And if we can cover them up and it does not impact on the office that they're holding, then that is something that we should be able to do. Accountability, as far as accountability on this earth is concerned, in, in essence, that accountability is with Allah, the Almighty, and uh, we all will be judged according to our own actions on this earth. So in that respect, the accountability does lay with Allah, and they will be accountable to Allah for their deeds. We will be accountable to Allah for our own deeds. And that is something that we need to take on board and, and take it, take, not take the matter always into our own hands. Dr. Sahib, that's very clear. Um, just on that, just picking up that final point, we often hear it's a phrase which is coined quite regularly, we're all responsible for our own actions. But too often that phrase is quickly forgotten when it comes to those in public life. And as I said, there is at times a great deal of prying done to embarrass us that may be something as Dr. Saab, which hasn't come to the fore, but if it is a private matter um, for those who serve in public life, those who may stand for elected office, it's not something they're going to print on their um, election leaflet, for example. But then, if you're living in a democracy, you have an opportunity to vote them out of office. But here, this could be rulers of different kinds in different worlds. But even the Hadith, which uh, Rahan is quoting, was specifically this, the way the Holy Prophet did respond, peace be upon him, did respond in the way that ultimately we're all accountable for what we do and leave the matter with God Almighty. Exactly, and citizens are accountable towards uh, God in, with respect to how they obey mm -hmm. and follow their leaders. So they're not responsible for dealing with how they behave. Mm -hmm. they, their part of the deal is they have to obey so that there's law and order in the society and there's peace in society. So if they're going to go around and dig up dirt on people, obviously the peace of society is going to be disturbed. And this is why in the, in the Quran itself, Allah says, La tajassasu, don't spy on one another. That's the first thing. If something is happening in somebody's private life, the only way it can come out is that people have gone and, and pried and mm -hmm. dug things up, you know, and exposed them. Otherwise, obviously, they're concealing these things. And so if they come into, into public life, it means somebody's been doing the dirty. And now the Prophet gave a very dire warning as well. He said, even about letters, Sometimes people might be tempted to open the letters who are not, that are not addressed to them. But he said that if somebody wants to acquaint himself with a letter, which is not for him, then in fact, in actual fact, he wants to acquaint himself with hell. Because that's the punishment of doing such things, you see. So Islam is very much for protecting private lives of people and uh, has forbidden, therefore, these kind of uh, activities because they're very, ne they're very negative. If something like uh, Dr. Saber said, if something does come into the uh, public eye by some you know, fortuitous event, then it's for the authorities to deal with it. The judiciary are there. There's a whole process according to the law of the land. Mm -hmm. But the citizens should not go and try and find out these things about their leaders. This is not the right thing to do. Gentlemen, as ever, <coughs> very clear. And uh, I'm sure Rahana 
agrees with me as well. And uh, thank you very much for that response. And my thanks also to Rahana Majid for the question. Our next question comes from Ilyas Sahib from Morocco. Assalamu alaikum, Ilyas Sahib. Thank you for his questions. They're sort of a twofold, uh, well, threefold question actually, and two probably interrelated. The first one is talking about we live in an age where what would call the traditional family units. Uh, some would perceive that uh, husband and wife have got married, they've had children or whatever. But the reality on the ground is, and Dr. Mm -hmm. Sahib, that you know, families exist in different forms. There's people who've been married mm -hmm. before, um, clearly. And uh, Elias Saab is now alluding to the fact that there then becomes this issue of custody of children if there's been children from a previous marriage. But he's asking what's the, in a scenario where husband and wife have had previous children, they have, or a previous marriage, and have children from that marriage. Both subsequently get married again. What are, first of all, the duties of the new husband to his wife's children from a former marriage? And then he wants to know it the other way as well, that if it's a, a husband who's got children from a previous marriage, what the responsibility of the stepmother is in this case? Well, because Islam lays so much uh, emphasis on the welfare of uh, people in society, uh, and whether they are blood ties or not blood ties, I think the, uh, it applies across the board. And in this respect of families which have this arrangement, then the, uh, it is very clear from the Islamic viewpoint that both have responsibility to the children from the previous marriages of their partner. So that is something that we know that has to be done. So you treat them and you have guardianship perhaps of them, and you bring them up as you would your own children. So you provide for them and you have every need of theirs should be looked after to the best of your abilities in every, in, every es, in every essence. You see, if you look at the life of the Holy Prophet of Islam, for instance, uh, وسلم, uh, when he first got married to his first wife, Hazrat Khadija, anha, um, she had a, a, a number of uh, people who she freed at that time. And they were not even her, her children at that time. And Hazrat Zaid, we know, for instance, who had been freed by, Hazrat, uh, by the Holy Prophet sallam, decided to stay in the company of the household and therefore he was therefore taken up as a member of the family. And we look at the welfare that the Holy Prophet gave to him, then we realize that that is in essence what we are supposed to do, is that even though he was not blood related to his wife, he brought him up as he would have his own child. So much so that when his... Uh, so that was even a further step removed. That was even a further step removed, so that he was not even a, a, a child mm -hmm. from a previous marriage. And the way he brought him up, uh, in essence, is how we should also behave in that respect. So the children from the previous marriages of your partner, and this applies both to the husband, the children of the wife, or to the wife, the children of the husband, then they are to be treated as you would treat your own children, and you have to pri provide for them and you have to make sure that you fulfill every obligation that you have to those children. And there's a greater onus just sort of scenarios, particularly when, for example, a wife may, as is normally the case, it doesn't happen every time, but the wife from a marriage will uh, take not probably the majority of cases. You have custody is normally given to the mother, especially if the children are very young. In that instance, is there a greater obligation on, say, the stepfather to pick up you know, the responsibility, because physically one would assume that the children would then be leaving with their yes. mother and by default the, the, the new father. Absolutely. When, when he has married the mother of those children, then he assumes a greater responsibility to the mm. fact that financially 
he would be required to also provide for those children. Uh, they're living under his, his roof mm -hmm. and therefore he has responsibility to provide every, every maintenance to those children who are going to be living with him. Um, and, and that is important aspect that uh, we see in this case. Jazakallah, Dr. Sahib. Jahangir um, Saab, if I could sort of move the discussion on uh, in terms of Ilyas's question, the second part of his question is to the biological father in, in this instance, and particularly a biological father who doesn't fulfill both, not just his paternal duties, but also his legal duties uh, to his own children. And is there any punishment associated with this? And quite often, uh, putting religion aside for a moment, we we get issues which are taken through the courts and then there is a judgment made, there is child maintenance provided or uh, the father, the biological father is obliged to make. Instances are, if they're not met, then you can go back to the justice system. I think what Adelaus is also saying is, is there a further punishment if, for example, biological father says, yes, I've given birth to this child and frankly, I don't want anything to do with it. Well, if we're speaking in secular terms, yeah. then in different countries, according to their legislation, there might be, of course, some kind of sanctions taken if he doesn't fulfill his responsibilities by way of providing for his children, which is the legal requirement in many countries. Um, but, uh, but as far as Islam is concerned, obviously Allah also tells people that you shouldn't uh, kill your own children. Mm -hmm. And killing your own children can, be, can have many meanings in the Arabic language. It could mean that you have spoiled their lives to such a degree that they have become, they, they start suffering, for example, and they become people who make others suffer as well. That means you've killed their morals, you've killed their spirituality. It's, it's, as, it's as if you've, you've gone and killed your own children, really. So Allah says, do not do that. So that's one responsibility. So obviously, if people kill their children, it's, very, it's a grave crime. Mm -hmm. But if they kill their, their morals and they kill their soul as well, it's also a very grave crime. And Allah, of course, will reserve his own right to punish these people if he deems fit to do so. Um, but also he says, do not be like the woman who, make, who makes yarn and then rips it up. So if people have brought children into the world, they can't just leave them to run around wild either. Mm -hmm. They have to look after the, their education. They have to look after their religious education, their moral upbringing. And this is, falls mostly upon the father. This is usually the father's role to fulfill all these things, to see whether his, his children are developing in every different way possible, whether it's spiritual, whether it's physical, whether it's uh, you know, moral, that's his duty. So this duty does not end because they've become separated. He still has to make sure that his children are behaving well. So the, the fact that the father isn't there doesn't mean that his responsibilities end. He still has to do his part to bring up that child to make that child become a, a rounded individual and a, be, a, a beneficial individual for society as well. Well, equally, equally, you could also argue that mothers sometimes not, that circumstances have made that this situation emerges where you get a mother who has to provide not just the nature, but the nurturing, the moral guidance. And there's some quite uh, incredible examples you know, well, that you have. I about was talking in principle. No, no, of course, but of course I understand. There are so many exceptions yeah. where you see mothers manage to, to, to do the whole thing, mm. you know, mm. and it's very difficult for them, but they mm. still pull it through. But you see, this is where the network of the family, the family network comes into play as well. Mm. When you have this broken down in society, when people are no longer in contact with their cousins, their mm. uncles, their brothers even, you know, they don't have a lot of help. So it's literally cutting them off from... Yes, 
But, but in an Islamic society and in many you know, more Eastern type societies, if, if I may say so, um, you'll find that there is a family network there and if the father isn't there, there are always the mother's brothers there, her cousins will be there, her father will be there. There will be so many relatives who will be available mm. to somehow bridge that you know, gap and uh, you know, help her to raise those boys, if she has boys in particular. But it's not to say that girls don't need a father, of course they do too. So this is also very important, but it doesn't, uh, you know, remove the responsibility ultimately from the biological father. He still has that to play and he'll be answerable to God for whatever happens to his children because of him. So this is a very dire thing and people have to be very careful what they do in such uh, circumstances, of course. Jazakallah Jahangir Saab and my thanks also to Dr. Saab for those two questions. Elias Saab has one other question, Dr. Saab, and it's... Um, it's about how it's totally removed from his previous two questions. <laughs> it was going into a life after death in the sense that he wants to know, I suppose picking up on the family element that Jangisab just mentioned, that after death, mm -hmm. will we know our families? Will we know our loved ones who've passed us by? When Will people who we love, will they know us? And uh, another link to his question is, he wants to know what age we'll all be. You know, will we all be sort of in some particular age? Um, Try to gel it all together. Exactly. Yeah. Well, you, you see, um, we often think of the life hereafter as a physical mm -hmm. uh, manifestation, whereas it is no way a physical manifestation. It is a spiritual manifestation. And sometimes when we look at the physical and try to interject it into the life hereafter, we run into these sort of issues which are difficult to explain. So the first and foremost thing that we should all remember is that life hereafter is not going to be a of a physical nature. Although some characteristics are explained to us here because that is what we are able to understand easily in this respect. Mm -hmm. But th at the same time, yes, uh, spiritually, we will be with our loved ones uh, and uh, we will be with those people who we have an affiliation to. We will be with our families as such. And therefore, uh, Allah will bring together those families in essence as, as far as that's concerned. As far as age again, because that's a physical matter again, mm -hmm. it, is, it does not really come into that. However, you know, there is an incident of an old woman who came to the Holy Prophet wasallam and said, Oh Prophet of Allah, please pray that I too should enter paradise. And the Prophet in a jesting manner said to her, there will be no old woman in paradise. And this uh, upset her very much and the Prophet seeing that this was the case, he then reassured her. He said that Allah would make you a young fair maiden and you will enter paradise. And that, I think, brings together the, uh, the, the explanation that Allah will transform us mm -hmm. spiritually, that we will be like young and we will be like beautiful, which is purity and uh, pleasing to the eye. And that is what we will have in the hereafter. Because old age, of course, is something which causes distress in this world. So there won't be, it's a metaphor yeah. to show that there won't be anything which will cause you distress there. It's as if everyone will be young. But there was also one aspect with how, how, how will we recognize people, for example. Yeah, that, that, that yes, and I remember once somebody asked the Khalifa, Allah that when we go to heaven, will we be joined with the same wives that we had here on earth? And Hazur started laughing and said that this person is scared he's going to be back with the same wife again. <laughs> so there is this aspect which of course is not going to apply there, mm. but there, we will recognize people whom we recognized in this world. And not only that, we will even recognize people we have never met. For example, we will recognize the prophets, we will recognize uh, the Holy Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. There will be a way to, to recognize each other, just as there is a way here. 
And for example, when you see people in your dreams, you're not actually physically seeing them, yet you know it's them. Even if in the dream they're slightly different, you still know who they are. So in that life too, there will be a method mm -hmm. to know, you know who, who they are. And there won't be any unpleasantness. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's a crucial thing. I think both of you have touched on the key element that too often we look at the afterlife in the prism of the current life. So the issue of, you know, do you like someone? Don't you like someone? Mm. Do you want to be mm. with them or not? Well, those yes. those it negative It the whole thing. Yeah. It becomes a bit childish, yeah. you know, the and whole it, way of looking at it. And I think it. that's the prism that people sort of see the afterlife through. But um, again, it's, a, it's an area, it's a vast area, which we could spend a fair bit of the programme on. But for now, uh, bearing in mind some other questions we have, uh, gentlemen, Jazakumullah, and my thanks also to Ilya Saab from Morocco. Our next couple of questions come from uh, Nazar Abahid Saiba. Assalamu alaikum. Two questions she's asking and relating to both uh, childbirth and rearing of uh, children as well. Her first question, Dr. Saab, is about breastfeeding her child. Um, should she continue breastfeeding her child if she finds out that during that period she's um, fallen pregnant again? Well, medically, there is uh, nothing wrong with continuing to breastfeed your child while you're pregnant because um, although the hormones may change a little bit and your body does change while you're pregnant, the uh, uh, breastfeeding can continue. There may be some differences in the content of the uh, milk that is produced at that time, but that does not cause any problems. We know that, you know, if you look at the Holy Quran in Surah Baqarah and Surah Luqman, the suckling period for a child is described as two years. So that is what Allah you know, has, has set for a normal. It can be stopped earlier mm -hmm. for whatever reasons. It does not have to continue to the two-year two, two period that is suggested. Um, but that does not mean that if a, if, if a woman falls pregnant that she should stop breastfeeding the, the, the child. Sometimes in some pregnancies, if they are slightly complicated pregnancies, the health uh, visitors may, uh, may tell the, uh, the mother to stop breastfeeding the child before the end of the term of pregnancy because there are some uh, uterine contractions that could be triggered by the breastfeeding in okay. those complicated pregnancies. But it is said that in normal pregnancies there is no, no harm, no difference. And we know all the benefits of uh, breastfeeding and the bonding and the lactosal uh, 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 that are transferred. So it is beneficial for the child to continue to be reared as such unless there are circumstances for which they have to be stopped early. So there's no hard and fast rule. This is just, you know, you should take the medical advice as you... Yes, absolutely. It's a case-by-case case case thing. There's an interesting thing that during the time of Hazrat Umar, and he introduced many things in society, social, service, social security benefits was something that Hazrat Umar also in, uh, uh, initiated for every... Second, uh, the, the second caliph of Islam. Mm -hmm. For every Muslim in, in society at that time, there was a payment uh, made to every, except for those babies who were being suckled at that time. And then what happened is that the mother stopped suckling the child to get the benefit. Mm -hmm. When Hazrat Umar who found that out, he then extended it to everyone, including babies, mm -hmm. that, was in, that he did not wish to deprive the child of being suckled by the mother just for the benefit of that. So we see that there are benefits in extending that as long as is possible. Jazakumullah, Dr. Saab. And just picking up the sort of trail of the question, Nazar then goes on to ask, um, during that two-year period, um, is it advisable or should women avoid falling pregnant again, that if there is this, albeit somewhat um, exceptional link 
that there could be sort of, you know, issues with a second pregnancy of complete. Normally, some people take a hard and fast rule, don't have another child until the two years have elapsed. Well, this is a personal decision, mm. really. There aren't any hard and fast rules, once again. And whatever is paramount here is the health of the mother. Mm -hmm. That's paramount. So if uh, a mother, you know, has poor health or is going to, going to have complications in the uh, a further pregnancy, then obviously whatever the doctors are going to say, that person will have to, to follow, will have to mm -hmm. do. But there aren't any rules saying that you have to wait for so long, you know, to have, before you have your, your, your next baby. And we know, for example, that even the daughter of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu Fatima, Anha, she had uh, Hassan and Hussein seven months apart. Mm -hmm. So one was, was uh, premature, the second one. Mm -hmm. And the Prophet said that if children are born so close together, you can consider them twins. Mm -hmm. But uh, it, does, it means, it, and it goes to show that there aren't any you know, hard and fast rules about these matters at all. It's just if it happens, it happens. And, you know, but if you need to, to space them out for any medical reason, then you know, do it, but that's your personal Opinion. It's not, you know, it's not applicable for all. Of course. Yeah. Gentlemen, Jazakumullah. And my thanks also to Nazar Wahid for the question. Our next uh, question, we travel to Nigeria, comes from Dr. Niyi Sumunu. Um, Asalaamu Alaikum, Dr. Saheb, and thank you for his question. It's something, it's something which impacts everyone. He, mm. He's talking about the uh, issue of timekeeping. And my question he says, uh, the question actually says it bothers him on time. I, I'm, I'm, whether he intended to write it that way or not, but I can see what he's getting at, perhaps a frustration. You know, if you've given a time, you're trying to arrive, you're managing your own time, um, and people are late. And he's asking, what's the Islamic injunction, Jangir if I start with you on this, about keeping appointments and doing things on time? And he makes a particular reference to starting programs on time as well. <laughs> Well, it seems that there might be a slight uh, <laughs> laxity in uh, starting on time in his country. It might be the, the case. But uh, whatever be the case, um, in Islam, first of all, we're given this um, you know, lesson of punctuality every single day mm -hmm. in our prayers, aren't we? And because the prayer times keep changing as well, we have to always you know, stay on our toes because the time's going to change after every so, so many days. And so we have to always be on top of that matter. Um, so this is a very good lesson in life, of course. But uh, apart from that, there is a prayer which is taught by the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam to avoid laziness in particular. And laziness, one, of, one aspect of laziness is not being very particular about time, mm -hmm. keeping time. And uh, he says, and I'm going to read the translation here. He says, O oh Allah, I seek refuge in you from helplessness, sloth, cowardice, niggardliness, the burden of debt, and the domineering of men. So sloth here is of course the, the bit which is, uh, we, we are, or kasal in, in Arabic, which we are asked to pray against. So it's something which we have to try and uh, you know, fight against, using the power of prayer as well. You know, it's that important. No, I think, and it impacts all of us. I remember my father always used to, whenever someone gave him a time uh, where he had to get, he would always give the time, pick me up at 8.59. So if they ran late and they said, uh, sorry, Mansur Saab, we thought you meant quarter past nine or nine. He said, I meant neither. I gave <laughs> and uh, it was a way. He, and he picked that up. I, I know, Dr. Saab, we were talking before as well. Mm. He was very close mm. to uh, revered Hazrat Khan Sahib. And it was something that he picked up very much from mm. spending a lot of time with him, where the precision of time 
and the importance of time. Even when in Chaudhry Saab's case, I remember on sleep that he, he used to have this 40 second mm. sort of pause after which he would fall asleep. <clears throat> and it was so manageable time and uh, it was quite amazing to actually watch such precision. Mm. But I suppose, you know, it's a respect of each other's time as well, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, we are on this earth for a limited time and we cannot, Allah says, you cannot tarry one second beyond that time. And I think that that lays the foundation for our timekeeping. And as Jahangir Sab has said that every day for, for the prayers themselves, this is something that we do. The Holy Prophet also used to subdivide his time and his time management was excellent in that respect. Both uh, yourself, Lord Tariq, and myself are fortunate, as you mentioned, to have grown up uh, when Sir Zafrullah mm -hmm. Khan was here in London. And we saw at first hand of how he did it. If you remember, he ha used to have a waistcoat pocket watch. He never wore a wristwatch, but a waistcoat pocket watch. And his timekeeping was always impeccable, you know. Um, he used to hold the Sunday seminars in, in, in London. And in order to train us to be punctual for those meetings, he said that the t meeting will start at this, this time and the doors will be locked and anybody who arrives a second late will have to not benefit from the, from the seminar that is going to be held at that time. So this was the training that we had. But he did not only have it in the London Mosque, he had it at the highest assembly. As you know, he was the uh, president of the 17th session of the General Assembly in New York mm -hmm. at the United Nations. Mm -hmm. And uh, when he became president in his first session, uh, the, the committees had approved some of the recommendations. One of the approvals was that the meetings of the subcommittees and subcommittees, uh, General Assembly and subcommittees would start at half past 10 in the morning session and at three o'clock in the afternoon session. And the great man, when he, when he spoke, he said, uh, gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, in my eagerness to serve you, it may happen that I will call the meeting to order at 10.29, but it will never happen that the meeting will be tarried until 10.31. Mm -hmm. And the same for the afternoon sessions. And apparently this was the first time in the history of the United Nations that the sessions had started on time and finished on time and all of their matters had been concluded within that time frame. So this was what we saw at first hand with Chaudhry Saab and he was very particular. And we all, we all try to emulate these, these things, but mm. you know, we are weak at times and there are things that do get in the way of punctual timekeeping. But as far as uh, our effort is concerned, we should always make an effort to try to keep to the time. There's, it a, point, a, there's yeah. a point which you raised which yeah. I wanted to, to pick up on uh, uh, Lord Ahmed Sahib, which is that it impacts on other people's time mm. as well. And it's, it's impolite in a way mm. as well to, mm. to make mm. people wait for you. It may be very well for you, mm. but not for the other person, mm. you know. But also there's this thing about de uh, development and progress in a country. We see that uh, as a general rule, those countries which are more punctual tend to succeed better mm. in everything. Mm. And they're far in advance on those countries who, when they tell you, come and meet me at three, they themselves turn up at five, mm. you know. So those countries tend to not be so developed and not be so, you know, uh, uh, progressive in their, their outlook on anything, really. So it does impact, you know, the whole of society. It's a very important no, thing. It is. Actually. And as you said, it's culturally embedded at times as well. And you sometimes find, you know, that an event may be organized, a wedding or a program or whatever. And those guests who are more punctual, as you said, and mm. culturally attuned to being punctual will yes. arrive. 
and whereas quite often many others don't arrive on the basic assumption it will all start rather late. But when so they mean six, they mean really, they seven really mean or seven, seven or eight or, or seven something. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Gentlemen, Jazakumullah, and my uh, thanks also to Dr. Sahib for his question, and he's quite right in terms of punctuality. He put it in the context of prayers, which Jangisab answered, but the importance of you know, there's always said, what's the most precious present one can have? Well, it's the present in itself, and how you use it is based on your timeliness uh, with which you use your present time. Um, we're going to go on and come back home, rather, to, for our next question from uh, Amina um, Ali from South London. Uh, Amina Ali, sorry, from South London. Her question relates to the universe and the multiple of universes, and we talk about uh, Allah Ta'ala, God Almighty, being Jahangir Saab of not just this world, but of all worlds as well. And her then question arises that whilst you can accept the universal God of all universes, what about prophets and indeed the Khulafas, the successors to the uh, prophets themselves? Are they in multitude? Are there different prophets for different parts of the wider universe? Amina has picked up on a correct point, which is that Allah is the Lord of all the worlds, Rabbul Alameen. And that comes in the very beginning of the Holy Quran. So we don't have any doubt about there being many worlds. However, we don't know whether on other, in other worlds or on other planets even, there, are the type of, uh, there is the type of life that we know here, intelligent life. And is it, if it's intelligent, then is it also spiritual? Mm -hmm. So we don't know these things, we can only speculate. But it's quite possible, as we know Allah is this type of a creator, who brings his creation to this apex of where the creation starts being in contact or communication with him, in communion with him, then he would be doing so, of course, because he's still the same creator in other worlds too. So they will have their own religious systems, their own you know, spiritual development of some kind, which is either through prophets or whatever means Allah uses. But this is all speculation. Mm -hmm. And of course, Allah does promise that one day, Mankind is going to meet the inhabitants uh, of the heavens, <coughs> meaning in the heavens in this world. Mm -hmm. And uh, who knows? I mean, maybe it will be a, a meeting of intelligent beings, but it, it might not also. It may be just we are meeting other creatures, but they're not intelligent, so we really don't know. But it's going to be something great because it's mentioned in the Quran. Otherwise, so why would Allah say? Different types, because I, I'm also yes. conscious of the fact that three. Uh, from Austin, Assalamu alaikum. His, his question, which is um, the next question we will come on to, was this whole idea of extraterrestrial life and number one, does the Quran speak about it? And I suppose the natural question after that is if yes, and the answer is yes, that other life exists elsewhere, we talk about God of many universes, etc., that will this mankind, i.e., those human kind, meet with? you know, extraterrestrial, beyond the uh, realms of Hollywood films, I suppose. Yes, well, we don't know how the meeting is going to happen. Hazrat <laughs> Khalifa Rabi Rahmullah spoken a lot on this. And he said it might be only through communication, for example, because the distances between us and the, even the nearest planets, which are, uh, you know, inhabitable, are just mind-boggling. So perhaps we will never have the technology to, to, to be able to reach them. If, for example, we start with our present technology, if we send people out to meet anybody on any nearest planet, it'll be their descendants who will be meeting them, it won't be them, they'll be long dead. Mm -hmm. So this is, these are the, the limitations that we have in our technology, you see. 
but it might be, as I said, communication, who knows? Just like we used to think that, for example, speaking to, uh, you know, having a video call with somebody was of the realm of science fiction, but now we're all doing it, you know. Doors would magically open, etc. You know, and those mm. old Star Trek movies, etc. And we thought that would never happen, but it's been happening for a while now. They you do. Know? It was interesting, so, though, I, I talked of, you know, and I, you know, it shows my knowledge of Hollywood, I suppose, but um, I talked of films that were produced. There was a, recently, I, I was at a conference, and it was Back to the Future, uh, which was a film, and it was the celebration of 30 years on. And it was incredible actually looking at what was predicted then, and here we were. How now. much has actually come true? Yeah, some, yes. but interestingly enough, two things that hadn't been predicted one was the iPhone, and the mm. other was the internet. So it does actually demonstrate that the world of, uh, you know, Hollywood and films and, uh, yes. you know, people, what people dream 30 years. Sometimes, actually, you can think that the real achievements are way beyond what it, yes. we en envisage. Mm. And certainly, who would have thought when the internet came along, that first sort of, like, that, that this would be a source. It was actually, I think, derived as a means of uh, scientific research and sharing scientific research. And now it's a, it's a daily life uh, yes. element of our daily lives. So it's quite something. Um, I've, I've ordered my thanks to Amina for her question. And uh, also my thanks and saying assalamu alaikum to Farid Saab. He's got a series of other questions he's asked as well, Dr. Saab. And his next one is about the day of judgment in life. In, in life, well, I suppose it, it does come in life as well. But the actual concept of the day of judgment in Islam, particularly in light of the teachings of Islam. Um, first of all, if you could just briefly explain, perhaps, for all our viewers, the concept of the day of judgment for, from an Islamic perspective. Well, we certainly believe in a day of judgment, which will be a day of reckoning that mankind will appear before the Lord and be judged according to the deeds that they were carried out on, on this earth. And Allah will reward them or punishment for whatever deeds that they, they, they did. So that is the concept that we have, and Allah will grant us the blessings of paradise, heaven, or will, will punish us um, with the punishment of hell that is there. So that is what will happen as according to the Holy Quran that we, we know of and according to the articles of faith of Islam. This is something that will definitely happen. People fear it sometimes within well, we, we, Islam. We, uh, well, we, we, we are never sure as to whether we have been able to pass the test that has been given before us by Allah. Mm -hmm. uh, man is, is weak in many, many respects and whether he is able to actually uh, carry out the commandments of Allah to the best of his abilities, we, we never know. But we also know that Allah is the most gracious and the most merciful and the most forgiving. So we have these characteristic attributes of God. Those are the things that will actually get us through rather than our deeds that will get us through. It will be the mercy of Allah who will look upon us uh, as his people and, and perhaps reward us for whatever little good that we have done. Allah says that even if the good is of a very minute scale, then he will, he will reward us for that. And uh, perhaps in our life we do have time to time that man does do some good to some degree that he will be rewarded for all of that. The other thing is according to the Holy Quran, uh, this is not monopolized by Islam or Muslims alone. The mercy of Allah obviously encompasses uh, the whole of his creation and therefore we should all sort of wait for and hope for the mercy and glory of Allah for mankind as such. Jazakum Allah, Dr. Saab, for that. Uh, I'm going through, there's a, 
raft of questions for Reid Saab's asked us. Uh, next one, Jahangir Saab, he's asked about Hazrat uh, Noah. May Allah be pleased with him. And um, we hear, obviously, the famous story of all the animals being protected from the flood. And his question is a practical one, as he puts it. How was it possible to carry two of every species in, in his ark? Well, it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> it's practically impossible because there were several millions of species out mm. there. And it's out of the question that two of each of these species could have been carried by any kind of vehicle. Even now, we can't do that. But for many reasons. First of all, physically, there would be no room to put them on. Secondly, what would they eat? What would the carnivorous ones eat, for example? Thirdly, they would be facing a severe genetic bottleneck because all the descendants would be coming from only two animals. Mm. And that, if anyone knows anything about genetics, would know that that would spell disaster. You, to have a viable population, you have to have uh, genetic diversity mm. within that population. But if you only have two there, then that's basically no diversity at all. And they'll all be inbred, mm. you know. And so that'll be the end, spell the, the end of that species. So then there's the, the, the problem of, um, of uh, when the animals are going to be defecating as well. Can you imagine the amount, amounts involved here? So this is yeah. something which they haven't really thought through. So well, there was more specific, one animal could eat the other, couldn't it? Yes, I mean, but then <laughs> they get hungry as well. the species going, because then yeah. you have to remember, according to the biblical tale, mm. it was every animal on earth, and it was two of each. Mm. So th there were only two. Now, if any one of them had died, so it was a miracle, none of them died. And also the carnivorous ones had to fast for 40 days and 40 nights. Mm. Um, so it just, it's, a, it's a fairy tale. Mm. But when you turn to the Holy Quran, then you see that Allah is saying that, he, that Noah took every Zawj Karim with him. And that means uh, every noble species, but Karim also means generous. Mm. It means those species that are generous towards humankind. In other words, domestic animals. And there were two of each. And it doesn't mean that they were the only ones available either. Because the flood was a localized thing. There's no such thing as a, as a you know, uh, world. planetary world flood which occurred at the time. No, not at all. The question which was raised also, by, which is raised by atheists against the Bible is, for example, how did Noah save the kangaroos in Australia, etc., <laughs> etc.? Et I mean, they're valid questions. It's impossible, absolutely impossible. From any angle you look at it, it's impossible. But to carry a few uh, animals, for example, goats or sheep or camels, or it wasn't mm. even camels at the time, but uh, you know, cows and things like that, it would have been absolutely possible for them to do that. It's just so that they can start a new settlement after a few weeks. That's all it was. And there would have been genetic diversity for the very simple reason that there would have been other animals outside the flood area, which they could have you know, acquired later on. So Islam is a religion of, uh, of logic and, and reasoning. And uh, if you use the Holy Quran to read the Bible, then you will see the beauty of the biblical story. But if you don't, then in many instances, because people have added in many things into these stories by their own hand, and their own, de own defective reasoning, you see that we go and slip into these uh, you know, superstitious fairy tale kind of uh, accounts, which don't do any service at all to the religions that follow the Bible. Jazakumullah for that, Jahangir Saab. And um, Farid Saab's final question, Dr. Saab, again referring to 
uh, a well-known chapter in religious history. Mm. He refers to Hazrat Moses, uh, may Allah be pleased with him, and the, his separation of the sea when he was being followed by the Pharaoh at that time being chased. Um, the famous, you know, again, mm. this has been well documented in different faiths. Technically, is it possible or is there a different interpretation to it from an Islamic perspective? Well, I think there's quite, quite a simple explanation and we, we find this from the Holy Quran because there are several references to the exodus um, of Moses from Egypt to Canaan and this, this is mentioned in several places in the Holy Quran and when we, when we study that, we find that Allah said, take the people away quickly and cross the sea and so the crossing of the Red Sea is perhaps at its narrowest point at that is said to be less than a mile e even um, at the northern uh, near Suez it, itself and Allah says uh, cross the sea when it is motionless Rahwa so when it is motionless meaning that when the tide had ebbed away and there was a path that that could be easily uh, taken uh, for the for the crossing at th that time um, the Holy Quran says that when Hazrat Musa came to that point and he struck the uh, sea with his uh, rod the ebb had already started. So this was just a symbolic striking of the rod and, and the sea parted as it were, the, the ebb had started. The Bible talks of it that um, Moses um, sort of held out his hand and that is when, when the ebb started. You know, even in, 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 and when obviously Pharaoh and his army came, that the tide was coming, coming in. in. And sometimes it comes in so quickly that uh, even experienced people who are seamen, they don't realize as to how quickly it comes in and drowns people. I don't know if you remember recently in Morecambe Bay, some years ago now, the winkle pickers, yes, the Chinese course. winkle pickers, that they were out picking these winkles uh, on, on the sea. And uh, little did they realize as to how quickly the waters would come back and they drowned, so 20, 30 people were drowned at that time without knowing. And these, pe these are the people who had been doing this uh, for generations mm -hmm. there. So you know, that is exactly what would have happened. And there is a simple enough explanation as to Allah's plan. This was uh, that the people passed through at the uh, low tide and the Pharaoh was drowned at the high tide. So they were drowned all in all in that respect. Zakamullah, gentlemen, for that. And my thanks also to Farid Saab for his uh, various questions as well. Just to we're sort of moving to the, moving on rather to the final <coughs> question of the program today, which comes from Sajid Amitsar from Brampton, Ontario. Uh, Sajid's 17 and originally from Mauritius. He says, like, just one of your mm. scholars, Jahangir Sahib. So there are many people claiming the French, the Mauritians, the uh, Irish, Pakistanis as well, um, the Syrians they, they now. Can, they, can lay <laughs> they all lay claim to, yes. and that's, uh, that's the universal element uh, within Islam. Um, two questions uh, he's asking. The first one uh, Dr. Saib is asking about is about the quality of life of different people. Why are different people born with different sort of elements? He's talking about people particularly with disabilities, um, others who are both socially and economically less able than others. He's asking why is this injustice so apparent, particularly when you look at God Almighty as the ultimate arbiter of justice? Why does God Almighty let, us, let such uh, injustices and differences exist? Well, this is perhaps our short-sightedness that we are able to see disadvantages that some people are born with or have during the course of their life. And there are other difficulties that other people may have 
which are not realized by onlookers and therefore the, the two can never be uh, equaled in that respect. But the thing is that when we look at life and when Islam looks at life and we are told about life, then our time on this earth is a very short period as far as the whole lifespan of man is concerned mm -hmm. and the life hereafter is eternal life. So if you consider, even consider the time that man has been on this earth as millions of years, and we consider that even that is said to be a momentary uh, period of time, and the everlasting life that will come will be something that will never end. And it is towards that end that we should concentrate and see that uh, how we will have bliss in that life as, uh, as, as, as an etern eternity rather than the difficulties that we face upon this earth. However, if there, are, uh, uh, if, if there is suffering in this world, then God Almighty compensates for that in the blessings that he gives in the life hereafter. So if people are disadvantaged to that degree in this world, then the mercy of God is something that will actually overpower that mm -hmm. and, and they will have eternal bliss because of what they had to suffer in this life. But also, there's one thing which, as you said, I totally agree with this. People don't realize everybody is disabled to some degree compared to somebody else. Mm -hmm. Everyone has disabilities and everyone has things which, which hold them back. Mm -hmm. um, but these are the very challenges, challenges which uh, for, force people to move forward against the current mm -hmm. of those things, which, the current of adversity. And you'll see that many of the people who have achieved the most in life are people who started off with problems. They came from very poor backgrounds and they crawled their way out and they, be, they overtook everybody. There's so, so many you know, rags to riches tales out there. But even people with, born with handicaps as well, you know, they achieve so many things in life. They, they launch movements for helping people only because they were disabled in some way. And had they not been, they might not have done that. And they themselves say that we're, we're not complaining. Mm. You know, this is the thing which made us become what we are today. So it's all what you make of your life, as Dr. Saab said, it's only a very short time. So make the best of what it is and don't worry about what you don't have. Like Allah says in the Quran, don't extend your eye towards the things which you don't have, mm -hmm. which others have. But look to yourself and pray to God and he will reward you according to what you do. You will not be judged according to what the, 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 uh, to the capacities of somebody else. You know, I that's the ultimate justice, isn't absolutely. it? Absolutely, and I, uh, you're quite right. I mean, you stri strike a very obvious. We just look around us. We've seen how societies evolve as well in terms of accessibility when you talk of people with disabilities, in terms of the provisions which are now made, which many would argue are much more needs to be done, of course, but we live in a society which is evolving so readily, um, which actually caters for such individuals. And as you rightly point out, often, whether it's economic, whether it's social, whether it's physical, those sort of disadvantages themselves turn into advantages in terms of your own progress. Jazakumullah for that, gentlemen. Um, his final question, Jangi Saab, we, Dr. Saab touched upon his, uh, in his answer as well, about the afterlife, that there is a life after this, um, upon which, as we, in an earlier question, we were talking about people being of a, being of a different, you know, no sort of old people or in the sense that we visualize it now. Um, what are the proofs of the afterlife? That's what Sajid Well, there are asking. many kinds of proofs, but I mean, on a lower level, we could mm -hmm. say, why are we even talking about it if, it's, if it doesn't exist? Why, mm -hmm. does, why does the whole of humankind, ever since its inception, has been talking about the, the extension of life after death? Why do we even talk about it? 
it's because it's ingrained in us and it's there, it must be there for a reason. As we have seen now, everything in nature has a reason. And it's only the short-sightedness or the arrogance of scientists sometimes which you know, prevents them from seeing that. But little by little, this arrogance is being done away with because they're seeing that the things in nature have a reason. They have a purpose. In the universe, they have a purpose. So this is one of them. But the ultimate proof of the afterlife is that God himself tells people about it. And to, to back that up, he tells them things which are going to happen on earth within their own lifetimes or sometimes after them. But he, he makes predictions of things and these things come true. And when they keep on coming true, then God says, now you know that I am the truthful one, that what I say always comes true. Mm -hmm. I do not break my promise. Then he says, now you have to believe me for the next thing. But because you know I'm true, I'm telling you that you are going to continue living after death and you're going to have a, a, an eternal life there. So on that basis, we believe that there is a, a, an afterlife. Because Sajid, God is the one who's telling us himself. For Sajid's benefit, to name a couple of things just in the closing the program that well, on some of the prophecies. that. Well, some of the prophecies we've seen ourselves, for example, look at the, the Prophet Islam. He was born in a tiny little village in which was what was considered in India the back of beyond. And he's sitting there and he's all alone and he's saying, God has told me that he is going to not only let my mission die, he is going to make it flourish. He's going to make it known world over, the world over, and he's going to bring it to every corner of the, of the world. And from Mauritius, he should know that there is a place in Mauritius called the end of the world. So he, when Allah said he was going to bring the message to those places, at one time there was an Ahmadi even working there at that place. And so the message of the Prophet even reached that, that end or corner of, the, of, the, of the, the earth, of the world, you know. So this is, a, this is a very tall claim to make. To even know that your mission will survive your, in your own lifetime is a tall claim. To know that it will survive you know, even to your children's, uh, through their lifetime, it's a big, a big claim again. But to say it's going to go to the whole world out of that tiny village where there, there wasn't any train, there wasn't any electricity, there wasn't any running water, there was nothing of that. You know, it was all very basic. And yet, here we are today. And with that, we come to the end of today's programme. I would like to thank our panellists and say Jazakumullah to them for their very detailed and scholarly answers on an array of questions on a variety of different issues. And if you haven't found the answer to your question, you know what to do. Email us on faithmatters at voiceofislam.co.uk.